I know that that wasn't the perfect definition, but I think I got the gist of it. And Melody, I hope that you got the gist of my gist, if you get the gist. Gah! This one's radio episode 809 starts in three, two, Welcome back to Diz Runs Radio, where I talk with runners from all corners of the running world about running, life, and everything in between. I'm your host, Denny Cray, and it's just about time to head out the door for an easy run and a great conversation. So if you're ready, then I'm ready. Let's get started. Well, 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 how are we doing today, everybody? Welcome to uh, this month's listener Q&A episode of the show. We are at the end of January 2020, the, actually the last day of 2020 as the calendar works out. Today is January the 31st, although you might be listening to it on March 2nd or June 20th or whenever you listen to this episode. Hope that things are going well in your world and uh, hope you're ready to, to buckle up because it's going to be a long one today. We got a lot of questions today to, to, to get to. Uh, hopefully have a little bit of fun, maybe learn a few things, maybe help a few people along the way as well. Uh, I make no uh, promises that my answers will be entirely useful. I hope that they will. But uh, we shall see. If you're new to these parts, this is something we do at the, each, at, at the end of each and every month. The last Friday of each month is dedicated to your questions and uh, me hopefully trying to, to shine a little light, shine a little wisdom, give a little bit of something that's useful for you to tune into and, and learn from and then apply, hopefully, to your running. Uh, if you want to get your questions answered on the show on a future, future uh, question and answer Q&A episode, the best thing to do is come and join the Facebook group. Uh, you can send you questions via email, social media, whatever. Um, but there's like a 50, 50 chance, maybe more, maybe like a, a 75, 25 chance that those questions get lost in the shuffle. My email inbox disaster, social media stuff. I try to keep up with it, but you know, you get things in a bunch of different places and it's easy to lose sight of things. If you're in the Facebook group, which you can join at disruns.com slash Facebook, you know that every month I put out a post somewhere, somewhere about a week and a half or so before the, the Q and a episode goes out saying, Hey, what are your questions for this month? You throw your questions in the comments. I don't lose them because they're right there in the comments. Easy for me to find. And then we just go through one after the other and answer them. And today we got a boatload of questions, which is awesome. Awesome. Thank you for everybody who's, who's chiming in. Uh, this, this is going to be a, a long one, I think, because I think there's about 22, 20. There's like 26 or 27 questions, but a few of them are, uh, you know, shenanigans. Uh, so we'll plow through those pretty quickly. But I think there's, there's legitimately, you know, 21, 22 questions, something like that. Um, so who knows? Who knows how long this ends up being? Uh, you, you know, you might have to break it into two parts if you're out and about, and you have to press pause halfway through. No worries, come back when you're ready, finish it up. Uh, but uh, without any further ado, I don't need to extend the intro any longer because, like I said, we got a lot of questions to get into. So let's get into it, shall we? First question in the in the uh, queue this month. Coming from Carly says, uh, any advice for new runners scared to try long races? I uh, did the 5K and 10K marathon weekend. I'm assuming Disney marathon weekend. So congratulations. Uh, and thinking about doing a half marathon, but the distance scares me when I think about it. Uh, Carly, there's nothing to be scared of, girl. Uh, so, so here we go. We got, get the cheeky answer, right? Let's, let's get the cheeky answer out of the way first. Any advice for new runners scared to try doing longer races and not sure how to prepare for the longer races? Yeah, hire me. You know, hire me. I'll, I'll, I'll coach you up, girl. I'll, I'll make sure that you're ready to go, uh, to go 13.1 at, at a, at a half marathon coming up in the future. Um, you know, but, but in, in a bit more seriousness, there's a lot of resources out there. There's, there's working with a coach. There's be ready on race day, uh, which of course is my book. You can, you can read that. That'll help you prepare up. But if you're just kind of scared of the idea of like, 
I don't know if I can do it. Like, I know I can handle 5K. I know I can handle 10K. But 13.1, 21.1K, whatever, whichever, you know, whether you speak metric or whether you speak U.S. Uh, distance measurements, uh, it's, it's a big jump. It's a big jump. No, no doubt about it. And it, it can be a little bit scary. My, I think my advice to you, or I, I got two, two bits of advice for you, Carly. Um, one, don't feel like you have to do a half marathon. I think that sometimes, whether it's, it's external pressure and we don't realize it, or whether it is a bit of a peer pressure that's, that's more overt, I think we can sometimes get the feeling that like we always have to be doing more. You know, you're doing the 5k and the 10k and you might have some friends going, come on, you should, you can, you can, you you need to do the half marathon. You can totally do the half marathon. Maybe you're kind of inwardly a little bit asking that question of like, well, do I need to do the, the, the half marathon to be more of a quote unquote real runner? And I'm certainly not saying that you're, you're thinking that, but I know that some people do. Um, the problem with that is that where does it stop? Then you do the half marathon and then you got somebody or even that inner voice going, now you, now you need to do the marathon and then you need to go beyond that. And, and what I'm trying to say is that there's no reason to do a half marathon unless you want to do a half marathon. So, you know, don't worry about what other people are saying. Don't worry about that inner voice going, I'm not good enough for, or whatever yet until I do a, a half marathon. I'm not a quote unquote real runner. Uh, cause that's just, that's just ridiculous. All right. What you're doing is great. If you want to go farther, you absolutely can. If you want to do a half marathon, there's no doubt in my mind that you can do it. If you did 5k on one day, 10k on the next. Uh, and then, you know, it, as long as you weren't maybe trying to do a, a half marathon next week, you know, you might want to train up for it a little bit. Cause that's, it's obviously a, a bit farther than what you've done before. Uh, there's no reason you can't do it. You just have to want to, uh, secondly, the, the other, the other little bit of advice here is that you're not the first person that's ever had a bit of doubt, a bit of fear, a bit of trepidation about whether or not they could move up from one distance to the next. Maybe it's for you, obviously 10 K to half marathon. I don't know if I can do it. I'm a little bit scared. You're not the first person to have those thoughts. You're also not the last person that's going to have those thoughts. Okay. It's just part of the the natural progression of, uh, of our sport, natural progression of distances. Again, I'm not trying to say that you have to do a half marathon, that you should do a half marathon, that you need to do a half marathon. But if you want to do one, but you got a little bit of, of, nerves going on about it or not sure, or a little bit of, you know, scariness, which is what you said, the distance scares you. That's natural. That's normal. That's the fear of the unknown. I don't know what's going to happen at mile nine, mile 10, mile 11. Hey, join the club. None of us knew what was going to happen at mile, mile nine, mile 10, mile 11, until we went to mile nine, mile 10, mile 11, 13.1. Okay. So if, if you, if you want to do it and you got that little tingle of, of nerves and anxiety and a little bit scared about it, Hey, you're human. Congratulations. In case you weren't aware, if you don't want to do it, don't feel like you need to do it. But if you want to do it and you got that little bit of, of nervousness, nothing to, I would say nothing to be scared of, but obviously there, there is this, it's the unknown. That's, that's okay. But I promise you, you can do it. I promise you, promise you, promise you that if you train intelligently, build up gradually, increase your distances over, you know, several months, there's zero doubt in my mind that you can go 13.1 if you want to. So, uh, Carly, I hope that that somehow helps in some form or fashion. Uh, and obviously if there's anything else that, that I can do from a coaching perspective, or if we can do as a collective of the group, let us know, post up, you know, post in the group, some, some progress reports, people will cheer you on. People will support you. Just let us know what you need and support along your way to potentially 
your first half marathon. But thank you for the question and good luck. Michaela chimes in with her, her question. Uh, next says, uh, just give me a pep talk that I can hear when I get back from vacation. My 50K is only three days away. So, Michaela, we, we've talked a little bit on social media. We had a, a phone call a while ago. You know that, but just for the, the sake of everybody else. Um, and you're building up to your first 50K, which is awesome. Awesome. You, I know you're excited for it. Uh, you know, and kind of, <laughs> kind of like Carly, you know, it's still, it's a little bit scary and it's getting really real because it's coming up quick. Right. Um, but here's your pep talk. You got this. You got this. You've been, been training for this for months. You've been putting in the work. You did the marathon and, and you've been training, you know, obviously continue to train since the marathon leading up to the 50 K you've got the time on your feet. You know what you're doing. You're comfortable with the location of the race. Like you got everything you need. Now it's just a matter of doing it. Now it's just a matter of doing it. And again, it's a little bit of that fear of the unknown. It's a little bit of that, uh, that, that trepidation, that, that waiting is the hardest part. But once the day gets here, just get out there and go. Get out there and go. You know, nothing crazy. Just do, do you. Run your, worry about your pace. Enjoy yourself. Have fun. One step at a time. And, you know, you're going to get to 50K. No doubt in my mind. You totally got this. Just got to do it. Just got to do it. So one step at a time. One mile at a time. You got it. You got it. Can't wait to hear about it as well. And uh, looking forward to just hearing how it goes when it happens. But uh, no doubt it's going to happen. You're ready. You're ready. You got it. Just do it. Just do it. Next question comes from Peter. Based on my race times, can you help me identify an easy pace for a medium long and an actual long run? 5K pace, 9 to 9.15 minute per mile. 10K, 10 to 10.30 per mile. Half marathon, 11.30 per mile. Peter, great question and something that... uh, Maybe I don't do a good enough job of, not maybe, I definitely don't do enough job, a good enough job explaining. And it's easy to get lost in, in the details sometimes, the semantics sometimes. But one thing that I want to, uh, really point out based on this question is that there is no such thing as an easy pace. All right. And I know that I say run easy, easy pace, things like that sometimes, but easy and pace are not, they're somewhat related, but they're not tied at the hip. All right, so let me let me unpack that a little bit. Pace is obviously a time, you know, 9:15, 12-minute miles, whatever. That's that's your pace. That's not easy or hard, that just is. Okay? Easy or hard is all about effort. How hard are you working to run that pace? Okay? Now, obviously, the faster the pace, the harder you're running, right? So that's that's where I think sometimes the line gets blurred because hey, if I'm if I'm doing a a, a nine minute pace, I'm working pretty hard to, to do that. And yeah, quite right, you are. But what you'll find, maybe you've already found it, maybe maybe you will find this going forward. But there's there's there can be a wide swing some days between your paces and your your energy levels. Meaning, there are some days that I go out and run and it's everything I can do to keep my heart rate from going too high when I'm running at 1030, 1040 pace. Okay. Just for whatever reason, I didn't sleep well last night. Um, stressed out about something. Uh, maybe I'm running later in the day and I've got just stress from the day. It's hot out caffeine, whatever, but I'm, I'm struggling to keep my heart rate down low enough which signifies that it's an easy run, right? Because if my heart rate gets too high, no longer is it easy for my body. Then there's other days, like today, where I spent a good chunk of my my run at like 8.50 pace to like 9.05 pace, and my heart rate was, was not even close to setting off any alerts on going too high, all right? 
So I was running pretty fast for me today, but still easy, still easy. So there's some days that, you know, a 10 minute pace is totally easy. There's some days that a 10 minute pace is really getting after it. And so to try to give you a pace guideline or a pace suggestion, as far as what might be an easy pace, really hard to do, really hard to do because pace can, can fluctuate. You know, are you running on hills? You running on a trail? Is it hot outside? Is it cold outside? Is it windy? All kinds of variables. Like I said, sleep, fatigue, whole host of things that can come into that, that dramatically impact how easy a certain pace is, how hard your body has to work to maintain a certain pace. So instead of focusing on pace for what's easy versus what's hard, my advice, focus on effort. Best measure, heart rate. Not as good of a measure, but still works. The talk test. Can you talk? Can you carry on a conversation? Even if you're running by yourself, can you, can you spit out a couple of sentences? Can you reply to me right now with a proper sentence as opposed to talking like this while you're running? If you're doing that, you're running too hard. Or at least you're not running easy. All right. Maybe you're doing a hard workout, in which case, yeah, you're doing exactly what you should be doing. But if you're trying to run easy and that's how you're talking, spitting out one or two words at a time while panting for your breath, it ain't easy. Talking like I'm talking right now, or at least talking in full sentences before you need to, to take a little bit of a breath. Now we're talking about probably being easy. Okay. So if you want some pace guidelines, it's hard to give you anything specific. What I will say is this easy is going to be slower than any of your, the times listed. All right. Because I'm going to make an assumption and making assumptions is a little bit, uh, you know, can be a little bit dicey, obviously, but I'm going to assume that for your 11 minute and 30 second half marathon pace, you were pushing it. You were trying to race. You were trying to run hard, right? If I'm wrong, then I'm wrong. But if, if I'm right, then, then that means that that wasn't an easy pace, right? You were pushing hard. You were working hard to run 1130 pace. So an easy pace going to be slower than that. How much slower? I don't know. Depends. Probably going to vary from one day to the next. Might be a minute, might be two minutes, three minutes, four minutes slower. Could be, could be. All depends on lots of factors, which is why, again, really hard to try to nail down what easy pace should be for the different types of runs that you're doing. But if a run's going to be easy, it needs to be easy. Bite the bullet, get a heart rate strap, or at least do, do the talk test, one or the other. But use that to help you judge what's easy as opposed to pace, because pace, pace and, and, and easy hard, they're related, but they're not, they're not uh, always in, in lockstep. All right? So don't get, don't get caught up thinking that X pace means I'm running easy because it may, it may not be the case. It may not be the case. Uh, but thank you for the question, Peter. I hope that helps. Obviously, if you have other questions, let me know. Next question comes from Karen. What is the difference between strides and fartleks? Great question, Karen. Um, and the difference is really pretty simple, I think. Uh, so strides, like we talked about last, last month, it was a question on last month's Q and a is kind of like a, 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 a mini workout, a pseudo workout, if you will. So, um, you know, you're out running easy and then what are, what are strides? It's, it's when you're picking up the pace to like probably 5k ish pace, maybe a little bit faster than 5k, not all out sprint, but you pick up the pace to pretty good, but you only hold it for like 20 or 30 seconds. All right. Then you cruise back down into that normal, easy pace. Your heart rate picks up just a little bit, but you're only running harder for just that, that short bit of time. It settles right back down to the, the low level and you cruise for whatever, several minutes. Then you do another one. You might do three, four, five sets of strides during your, your four or five mile easy run, which means that you're doing less than like two minutes of actual 
pseudo work. So it's a, it's a pseudo workout. Lots of benefits, form benefits, uh, efficiency benefits, you know, stride benefits. I and mean, there's, there's lots of reasons to do it. Like I said last month, and like I need to admit again this month, I should do them more often. Uh, I literally haven't done one set of strides this whole entire month, which shame on me. Um, but, but so that's what strides are. Fartleks, fartleks are a proper workout. Okay. Fartleks are not a pseudo workout. It's a hard workout. It, it definitely counts as hard. Okay. For those that are following something like an 80, 20 or a mafetone, mafetone style or whatever, fartleks are hard period. All right. But what are fartleks? So fartlek is, is one of those words that everybody kind of knows, but nobody knows what it means. It's, it's, it's uh, a Swedish word, I believe. And it, it, basically means speed play. So it's kind of like random intervals is what you can think of as, as a fartlek workout. So instead of like your, you know, if you do a normal quote unquote, normal speed workout, you might do, you know, six by 800 meters where you, you know, it's the same interval. You might do, you know, five by two minutes or whatever, where it's the, it's, it's uniform. Or you might do something that where it's like a pyramid. So you're going one minute, two minutes, three minutes, and then back down or something like that. Something pretty steady, eddy. You can plan out exactly what the workout's going to be. Fartleks, on the other hand, are speed workouts with no rhyme or reason, no real uh, set schedule. So sometimes it might be, you know, a, a tenth of a mile hard. Sometimes it might be a mile and a half that you're pushing, you know, hard, but obviously you're running a lot harder for a tenth of a mile than you are for a mile and a half because you got to pace yourself differently. Um, when, we, when we do the, the group that I occasionally run with, it has a, as a fartlek route that they do where it's, it's kind of the same intervals, but it, it really does vary from like a 10th of a mile to over a mile with the, with the, with the, um, as far as the hard efforts go, the recoveries likewise follow suit. So the longer the hard effort, the longer the recovery interval. All right. But it's, it's all kind of willy nilly. And, and my favorite type of fartlek runs are ones where you really just literally make it up where you're going, all right, like I'm going to run to the, you know, I'm going to go hard from that house with this, with the porch light on to the third house on this block that has the porch light. And it might be the, the third house down. It might be 15 houses down until you get to that third porch light, but you're just going to go hard until you get to the next porch light. Then you slow down your recovery, uh, kind of to an easy run, catch your breath a little bit. And then you maybe pick out some, all right, now I'm going to go hard for 47 seconds, whatever. I mean, you just literally like, like just making it up. So your intervals aren't, aren't even, some of them are short, some of them are longer, some of them are distance based. Some of them might be time-based. Some of them might be to the, the fourth light pole down the block. Some of them are to the, the, the stop sign around the corner. It's just go hard, recover, go hard, recover, but completely random, completely random. So, um, you know, to, to make it simple words, strides, it's not a real technical workout. It's kind of some form work, but not a hard taxing effort. Fartlek's hard taxing workout that you're going to do hard. You're going to go hard and then you're re- going to recover from for a day or two, you know, as far as whether it's rest days, easy runs, whatever, but that counts as a real hard workout. And it's just, it's just a, like, like a, a speed work uh, grab bag. So you never know what the distances are going to be until you're out there going and you just kind of figure it out, make it up sometimes as you go. Uh, hope all that makes sense, Karen, but uh, definitely I'm a huge fan of fartleks. Some people like more structure than me. I'm like, I'm, I'm loosey goosey. Like, Hey, let's just make it up as we go. Have a good time. Love it. Love me a good fartlek workout. Uh, next question comes from Craig. He says, I usually run in Brooks, but decided to try a pair of Hoka 1-1 Clifton's. The Clifton's feel great on the treadmill, but kind of awkward on the street where the Brooks feel great on the street, but seem to make my calves tighten up on the treadmill. Reason. Craig, I don't, I don't really have much for you on that one. Um, I, w- I would, I, I, I don't know. I don't know. Um, yeah. I'm gonna have to leave it at that. I mean, I, there's there's a dozen 
possibilities maybe that are somewhat related to the the gosh i don't know there's no reason that i can really think of that makes sense why a pair of shoes would feel good on one surface but not the other necessarily but then the other the others being opposite like it would make more sense to me if whatever you were wearing felt a little bit awkward on the treadmill and then felt good on the roads or vice versa uh, because of like the differences between the road and the um the difference between the road and the treadmill. Uh, the, the, I guess maybe the one thing that might make a difference. I don't know. I, this is a, this is an awkward answer to this question. Um, maybe it has to do with how much cushion that the Hoka's tend to have. Those tend to be a bit spongier, a bit softer. Um, so maybe that has something to do with kind of, of the cushiness of the treadmill anyway. And, and, and the street being a bit firmer. I don't know though. I don't know. That's, that's a mystery to me. If you can figure it out, let me know. But uh, I'm, I apologize, Craig, but I don't have... This is one of those, this is one of those questions where the answer, yeah, it's useless. I, d- I don't know. I have no idea why that would be. And I have no experience running with either the, uh, the Brooks or the Cliftons. So I can't even try to talk about it from a shoe perspective because I had no idea what those shoes, either of those types of shoes are like. So uh, I apologize, Craig, but thank you for the question. And uh, good luck. Good luck. I, I don't know. I don't know, man. Sorry. Uh, next question comes from Greg. Uh, any surefire ways to not forget your shoes on race day? Yeah, man. Make sure they're in the car before you leave your house or your hotel to go to the race. Easy peasy. You don't have to have them on your feet. Just make sure they're in the car. Maybe don't take them into the hotel room. Just leave them in the car because you're not going to need them in the hotel room. Anyway, there's a story to that. Obviously, I, I forgot my shoes. We'll get to that. We got a few more shoe-related questions as we go. Um, We'll unpack it as we go. But uh, Greg's real question, he says, just kidding. Uh, after that first little question, he says, I'm looking to transition from 12 millimeter drop shoe to a four millimeter drop shoe and then eventually to a zero drop shoe. Thoughts on the proper way to make the transition to avoid Achilles and calf pain and keep a proper foot strike. So um, yeah, Greg, a couple of, of suggestions. First of all, I think your biggest transition or your biggest hurdle in the transition process is going to be that first one. Going from 12 to four, that's a big jump. That's a big jump. It's going to be difficult. And it's not, let me take that back. It's not going to be difficult, but if there's going to be some some pain and some some discomfort, some tightness, that's where you're going to feel it. That's where you're going to feel it. Going from four to, to zero probably won't be that big of a deal. Okay, not guaranteed, but probably won't be that big of a deal. Um, that said, how to how to do it? How to transition? When when I made the transition, when I when I changed from probably something similar to a twelve millimeter drop to a zero zero shoe, um, I also kind of went in the middle with something like four or five millimeters to begin with. Um, but, but the, the first thing I did was really focus on my form on my foot strike, uh, when I was still in the, the clunkier shoes. So I was really focused on landing with my foot underneath me as opposed to landing out in front, which is what I w- had been doing. I had been certainly heel striking, but again, and I know I've talked about this before, but it's been a while. It's not that heel striking is, is necessarily bad, it's that when you heel strike, you're more likely to land with your foot out in front of you, and that's where you cause problems. If your heel is hitting the ground pretty much first, but you're landing with your foot underneath you, hey, we're good to go. We're good to go. So make sure that you're landing with your foot beneath you. All right, that's that's the most important thing. Maybe not the most important thing, but in, in the context of this question, that's going to go the the farthest towards helping with that transition from a, a thicker thicker shoe with a, with a bigger drop to eventually get into a zero drop land with your foot underneath you which means you're going to uh, kind of be land with more cushion you know natural cushioning which is going to help when you drop down from that 12 millimeters of cushion to just four millimeters uh it's going to be less shock less shock to the system easier to handle uh you're going to be loading your achilles and, and your calf and they're going to be more used to it by landing with your foot underneath you the other thing as far as exercises go that's going to definitely help you is doing eccentric heel drops 
which or eccentric heel raises or toe raises or there's a bunch of different names for it but the key here is the eccentric part what does that mean so you stand on like a step at your house something that that is elevated off the floor raise up on on the toes of both feet then pick one foot up off the ground slowly with your legs straight although you're going to also want to do this with your legs slightly bent at the knee but we'll start with just leg straight slowly lower yourself down with that foot that's still on the on the edge of the step you know with the, like the ball of your foot on the edge of the step lower yourself down keeping that leg straight until your heel is below the level of the step you should feel some stretching through your Achilles some stretching through your calf keep going until you can't go any farther okay don't force it nice and slow controlled don't just drop down slow and controlled then bring your second foot back down raise back up on both toes and you can either do you know all of them on one leg or switch back and forth between the legs. But what that's doing is helping to strengthen your calf muscle and your Achilles tendon eccentrically, which means that it's strengthening while lengthening. So most of the time, our muscles uh, are, are focused on strength while contracting. You know, you're doing the bicep curl while you're doing the push up. The muscles that you're working are contracting. They're getting shorter to, to do the movement, right? But in this case, you're working on strengthening the calf strengthening the Achilles tendon while you're actually putting a little bit of a stretch on the muscle as well, which is where the, the, the drop, you know, right, where you're lowering your heel lower than the, than the surface of the step. That's getting the stretch part going on there. Uh, I'll try not to get too much in the physiology, but that's basically what happens when you're running is you're putting a huge eccentric load. When you, when you step down, when your foot touches the ground, there's all this eccentric loading on your calf, on your, on, on your Achilles tendon. And when you go from a thicker, thicker drop or a higher drop, like a 12 millimeter to four, you've got more distance that the, that the foot is going through in that eccentric loading phase. So if you can condition the muscle now, it's going to make the transition a little bit easier. I hope that that all makes sense. I know that might've gotten a little bit technical, but doing those exercises will be huge. The other thing to, to strongly consider, I strongly recommend is cut back on your running while you're first making the transition. Okay. If you normally get 30 miles a week, drop it down to 10. Space out your runs a little bit. Give your body plenty of time to adapt and recover. Maintain your fitness by doing some cross training. Okay. Maintain your fitness on the bike, in the pool, on the elliptical, stair climber, whatever. We're not talking months of this reduced running load, but drop it down for a couple weeks, three weeks, and then slowly build it back up. So maybe, maybe you go two weeks at 10 miles per week. And then two weeks at 15 and then two weeks at 20, two weeks at 25. And then you're back to your normal 30 mile weeks. Okay. I'm making up those numbers. Of course, listen to your body progress as you're feeling able to, but if things are really tight, really sore on your calf and your Achilles, just back off a little bit. Your body's adjusting. Your body's getting used to the new demands. It's going to take some time. You don't want to overload the system. And by trying to continue to run at the same level while you're making a big change like this, all you're doing is asking for an issue. All right. So don't ask for an issue. Don't beg for an issue. Back off. Do the, do the eccentric work on your calves. Pull back on the volume. Certainly keep things nice and easy. And as things start to feel better, then keep increasing the mileage slowly. All right. I think I had tightness and, and soreness in my calves and Achilles for like, I don't know, six or eight months. Not nothing severe, but it was noticeable. And then all of a sudden, you know, your body starts to really adapt and gets used to it good to go. But if I had it to do over again, I would definitely would have cut back my mileage. I think that would have helped me a lot and would encourage you to do so as well, Greg, but hope all that makes sense. Other questions, let me know. 
Question from Nancy. Do you wear orthotics for running shoes? Do you recommend any kind of insole for your shoes? I have used them on and off, but was just looking at some from Superfeet, but not sure if it is something that I need or want. No, 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 Nancy. I do not wear any type of orthotics or insole, and I don't recommend it unless, caveat, I don't recommend it unless you really have a specific need. So, what does that mean? That probably means that you've been, a do- uh, you know, seen by a podiatrist, seen by a, a doctor that isn't just a general practitioner, but somebody that really knows the foot or, or maybe a sports orthopedic doctor, ideally an orthopedic, a sports doctor that is uh, specializes in podiatry. Although, you know, sometimes I understand how m- the medical system works. So you may not get to see that the exact doctor that you want, but somebody who knows runners, knows the foot. And, you know, you got to be having some serious issues, some serious problems that you're dealing with for me to think that orthotics are probably necessary. Okay. I think that in general, orthotics, inserts, uh, whatever you want to call them, uh, stability shoes, all of the above are way overused in the running world and just in life in general. Okay. Uh, are there some that need them? Absolutely. Is it as many that use them? I don't think so. I don't think so. Um, our bodies are pretty awesome. <laughs> like, like the way that they work, the way that they function, the way that everything works together, especially in your feet, it's, it's mind-blowing how just how complicated, complex, and like awesome that everything works when it's working correctly, of course. By putting something like an orthotic or especially like an off-the-shelf, one-size-fits-all, quote unquote, uh, insert into your shoe. You're not allowing your foot to work like it's designed to work for you, right? Your, your foot has been part of your body and figuring out your, your mannerisms and how you, how you stand and how you run and how you walk your entire life. And now you're going to throw something in your shoe that, that doesn't allow the bones, the muscles, the tendons, the ligaments to do what they do because it restricts them because it holds them in one place. It doesn't make sense to me. Again, unless you've got serious issues, seeing the doctor and they're like, yeah, there's this, this, this thing that's a problem. All right. If you just have some like general tightness, soreness, some little things, uh, that, that aren't like major problems. My advice is to strengthen your feet, work on your feet, do strength exercises for your feet, do toe yoga, um, do balance work, do things that make your, that, that help your feet do their job better. And odds are you're not going to need the fancy orthotics and inserts and insoles and all that, that mumbo jumbo. So no, I don't wear them. Um, I mean, if, if it ever, you know, if I had f- broke my foot and needed some type of extra support somewhere along the line, yeah, yeah, I probably would get a pair. Um, but heaven help me if, if I can, if I don't ever need some type of orthotic, I'm not going to certainly get something off the shelf and throw it in my shoe and just hope that it might help because odds are it's not going to help, not going to help. So, um, great question. It's something like, I guess, again, I, I think that a lot of people think that, you know, they see the marketing, they, they hear that somebody else got this, this insert and it seemed to work for them more often than not trust. I trust my body. I trust nature. I trust, you know, the, the, the design of the human foot over some piece of plastic or, uh, foam or combination thereof that I stick in my shoe and just hope for the best. Like, no, 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 no. I'm going to trust my body and let my body do what it does. Let my foot do what it does. And so far, 
that hasn't really failed me. So I'm going to keep on keeping on on that front. Uh, next question from Kate. Now that the new year is underway and new goals have been set, I'm interested in a little look back. What did you learn from completing your 2019 goal of a marathon distance run each month? Pros, cons. Do you think it moved you closer to some of your long-term goals? Kate, great question. And here's the thing. It's such a great question that this is, this is literally what the plan is for next week's quick tip episode. So I'm going to punt on this question. I think this might be, this might be history in the making here, y'all. This might be the first time that I've gotten a question that I've literally just said, Hey, I'm not answering this one today because I'm answering it next week. So, uh, you'll have to come back next week, Kate, to hear the answer to this one. Uh, but yeah, I, it was, it was an interesting challenge. Definitely some things learned and, uh, we'll dive into it in much more depth next week. So instead of giving too much of a tease now, I'll just say, Hey, come back next week to hear the answer to that one. But, uh, thank you, ma'am for the question. And, uh, and yeah, I'll, I'll answer it for you in another seven days. Uh, next question comes from the short himself, Mr. Chris short, uh, when running a road half marathon in trail shoes, does one have to fight the urge to veer off course at times? No, no one does not have to fight that urge. However, you know, again, kind of talking about the shoe situation in case you didn't hear already, uh, at, at the uh, half marathon for the goofy challenge, I forgot my running shoes, my road shoes in the hotel, got to, didn't quite get to the parking lot, but got close enough that there was no turning back. There was no turning around. There was no opportunity to go back and get my, my proper shoes. Um, I had my flip flops on, didn't have my running shoes, but I did have some trail shoes in the back of the car. So, you know, figure it out, make it work, you know, channel my, my inner Tim gun and, and just make it work. Uh, picked what I thought was the best option of the trail shoes I had available and, uh, saddled up and ran a road, road half marathon in trail shoes. Not that I wouldn't recommend it going forward. Not something I plan to do again, but you know, make it work. Right. That said, to answer your question short, uh, I didn't have to fight the urge to veer off course, but I'll tell you what, you know what Disney races are like. A lot of you might know what Disney races are like. If you don't here, let me tell you, there's a few spots at a Walt Disney world race where you get a lot of people trying to run in a pretty tight area, specifically like one lane of road, thousands of people trying to run on it at the same time. And it can get a little congested and it can get a little bit tight. And with the trail shoes on, you kind of look at the shoulder of the road that has kind of a steep drop off down into the ditch and you go, hell, I got trail shoes on rock on. And you just, you get in the grass power past, you know, 500 people get back on the road. So, you know, not that I would, not that I would, uh, advocate for purposefully wearing trail shoes at a road race, but there was, you know, one little, one little bright spot. And that, uh, you know, I was able to get in the, the wet grass and not even worry. Cause I had, I had my, my shoes on that had all the grip I needed to run in a little bit of grass along the way. So I did that. I did that a few times. Didn't veer off course, although maybe technically that's veering off course. I don't know, but jumped on the shoulder of the road, powered through definitely was a win ish on that front. Uh, next question, follow-up question from short again. What are the benefits of waiting until you get to the race to put on your running shoes? Not sure if this is a serious question or not, but because I'm a serious guy, we'll treat it like it's a serious question. Um, there's no benefit. There's no, there's no like legit benefit. Like, I'm not going to try to tell you, Hey, don't wear your running shoes in the car. All right. That's, that's not good for you. It's not good for your shoes. Like, no, whatever. It's no big deal. The reason that I do that, I've, I can't think, I'm sure there's probably been an instance, but I can't think of a time that I've ever worn my running shoes in the car on the way to a race. It may have happened one of the early days, one of my first couple of races, when I didn't know what the hell I was doing, 
But these days, doesn't happen. Why? Because I hate wearing shoes. I'm, whatever, making up numbers. I'm a thousand times more comfortable in my flip-flops than I am in my shoes. Even my good running shoes that are, that are super comfortable, love them. Given the choice, flip-flops over shoes every day of the week, twice on Sunday. Okay? So when I'm going to a race, I want to be comfortable. I want to relax. I don't want my feet to be sweating because there's trapped inside a pair of socks, inside a pair of shoes. All right? Now, yeah, I could turn the air conditioner on my feet, blah, 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 blah. No, I'm just going to wear my flip-flops. My feet are still able to breathe. No problems. Get to the parking lot. When it's time to head to the start for the race, put the shoes and socks on. Good to go. Good to go. So that's the benefit for me. It's comfortable. It helps me relax. Not, not be a little bit extra tense because I got these uncomfortable shoes on. Nope. Just got my flip-flops on. Good to go. So that's why... That's why I wore the, the flip-flops out of the room. That's why I wore the flip-flops in the car. I didn't even think twice about remembering to make sure to bring my shoes with me. It's a lesson learned next time. I'm not even taking the shoes into the hotel room. Because why? I don't need them in the hotel room. I ain't going to put them on. Don't need them. Leave them in the car. Leave them in the car. Especially at a race when I'm leaving from, you know, I'm, I've got my car there. There's no excuse to have put the shoes in the, the suitcase. That was ridiculous in hindsight. Wasn't flying. Didn't need to pack them into, into the suitcase to get to the airport. Throw them in the back of the car. Ridiculous. But yes, that's that's my my reasoning. Is it a benefit? No, probably not. But that's why I do it. And why even after this little mishap, there's no plans on changing anytime soon. Troll all you want. That's that's my story. And I'm sticking to it. Uh, Melody, Mrs. Short comes in with the next question. Uh, follow up to the follow up. How many sass questions can you ask your coach before he drops you like a hot potato or tells your wife to smack you upside the head asking for a friend? Miss Melody, you always have my permission to smack Mr. Chris upside the head. So thank you for, for looking out for me. Thanks for having my back. Uh, and don't be afraid to give him a, a stern talking to or a little, uh, a little how's your father uh, for, for all these silly trolling questions that he's got going on. But uh, appreciate you guys. And, uh, and, and yeah, I, I don't know how many SAS questions it would take. There'd probably be a limit at some point, but... For something like forgetting my shoes, I feel like I've, I kind of have earned the sassiness on that front. So I'll, I'll let him slide a little bit this month. Uh, Chris from Vermont says, what is the best piece of running advice that anyone has ever given you? This is a, a, a really, you know, one of those questions that made me stop and think for a minute. And to be quite honest, Chris, I don't know that I can think of any great advice that someone has like given to me that stands out as far as like something that they've said to me whether in person or on the podcast. And I know there's been plenty of times when I've talked to folks and just been like, wow, yes, yes. But nothing, nothing really stands out as far as this is the, the, the end all be all advice. What, what does stand out to me is the various resources, conversations, books, articles that I've read that talks about running slower to get faster, whether it's heart rate training stuff, 80, 20 math tone, whatever. Um, I was definitely that guy. And if you go back in the archives of the website, like there's, there's articles about, hey, if you want to get faster, you got to run faster. But looking at the science, understanding the science and, and why the last thing we need to do to get faster is to just hammer hard all the time. Why that's the worst idea. Like that's been the, the advice I feel like that has really shaped me more than anything else, both for my own running and for the work that I do as a coach. So um, 
I think that's the best advice. I don't know. I can't credit any one person for giving it to me because I've gotten it. i gotten it from several different angles. Um, but that idea that you don't have, in fact, that you shouldn't run hard all the time if you want to get faster, that's, that's the best piece of advice that I can think of. Um, but again, there's so many good bits out there, so many good lessons I've learned, uh, so many good things I've taken from, from conversations on the podcast, but that's probably the one that stands out the most. So uh, great question, something I'll be, I'll be continuing to think about for days, but that's, that's the answer that I ultimately uh, feel like I have to settle on because you probably don't want to hear me just think for days trying to come up with a better answer than that. So that's, that's what we're going to go with. That's, that's my, my answer. Best advice, slow down. Slow down and run easy most of the time, and you'll be good to go, even when it means to run fast on race day. So that's, that's my... my uh, that's my answer. Thank you, Chris, for the question. Next question, perfectly timed, comes from Jen, asks, tips on how to become a faster runner. Slow down, Jen. Slow down, Jen. Run easy most of the time, Jen. That is by far my best tip for becoming a faster runner. And it's, it's funny that this question is here because this this week on YouTube, I had the same question from somebody else. How do I get faster? And I, the answer is the same. Slow down. Slow down. Stop trying to run fast all the time. Run easy most of the time. And, and to explain it a little bit more, in case you haven't heard this this explanation before, in case you're like I was, uh, however long ago, eight, six, eight, ten years ago, when I was like, no man, if I'm going to get faster, I got to practice running faster. No, you don't. And here's why: unless you're really, really worried about your top speed and running as fa- running faster at all out sprint, you already have all the speed you need. So let's let's talk half marathon. Say your goal for the half marathon is to to run a two hour half marathon or a sub two hour, 159.59 half marathon. You got to run like a 906 pace. All right. 906 per mile for 13.1 miles. You'll be under I'll be right at two hours. So let's say, let's say you got to run nine minute pace to so give yourself a nice little buffer. You'll be at like 150, 158.59. Beautiful, right? If that's your goal, you probably don't need to run faster because I would bet that if you were to run as hard as you can for a mile, You'd run, I don't know, 7.45, 7.30, eight minutes, something, something faster than nine minute pace. Okay. So clearly you've got the speed to run a two hour, sub two hour half marathon. What you don't have is the endurance to maintain that speed for the entire 13.1 miles. So that's why slowing down building your aerobic, aerobic base, building your aerobic fitness, increasing your, your endurance is the, is the trick, is the secret. Becoming more efficient as a runner. Now, all of a sudden, instead of being able to maintain that nine-minute pace for, for four miles, you're able to maintain it for 14 miles. And that right there is the rest. Not that it's, not that it's like that. You know, it, it takes, might take months, might take years to get there. But you continue to run at an easy pace. Continue to run at whatever, 11-minute pace. 12 minute pace, nice and easy, building up that aerobic base, building up that aerobic endurance. And then on race day, you open it up at nine minute pace and you just cruise and you end up at 158. and you go, hell that, that, that slowing down stuff really does work, really does work. So that's, that's, that's the best tip. Now, again, you know, kind of glossing over some details. It's still good to do some speed work once in a while, probably good to do some strides as I've been kind of told that, or I've, I've told myself that the last couple of, of these episodes, um, but for the most part, the majority of runs, nice and easy, build that efficiency, build that base, and you're good to go. On race day, you're able to, to just channel channel your inner, you know, fast runner and get out there and get after it. So I hope that makes sense, Jen, and certainly not meaning to make light of your question. It's, it's something that uh, 
you know, most of us want to get faster, but the, the, the best way to do it, it's so counterintuitive. It literally is to just run easy, run easy most of the time and you will get faster. The science is, the science is, is almost irrefutable, especially for those of us that aren't like at the peak, peak, peak levels of fitness, peak levels of, of expertise, elite level runners. Those of us that are, that are, that are us, we've got a lot of, of room we can grow by simply focusing on the aerobic side of the, of the sport, which is done by running easy, running easy. Uh, next question. I think we're about halfway through, although I didn't exactly count, but we're getting, we're getting about there. Uh, next question comes from Jackie. I felt tight hip flexors last run tips to fix to avoid injury. So, uh, Jackie, great question. And something that, um, is easy to overlook, easy to overlook. Uh, a lot of people, a lot of runners have tight hip flexors, some ways to get around that stretch your quad, stretch your hip flexors. So if you're not aware, hip flexors, it's the muscle that kind of crosses over from your, from your abs, from your core down into your legs, like right across your, your pelvic bones, your hip bones. Okay. They're the muscle that that's kind of in charge, or at least a couple of muscles that work together in charge of like raising your knee up. So if you're, if you're thinking about marching, marching in place, raising high knees, marching, you're firing your hip flexors every time your, your leg comes up in that type of marching motion, which obviously we don't march when we're running, but that forward leg swing hip flexors. Okay. So it's, it's a muscle that we work a lot when we run and doesn't make it. It's not surprising at all that over years of running miles of running, those muscles start to get tight, right? You're using them a lot, especially if you don't stretch them as much, they're going to get tighter. So stretch your quad, just pull your, pull your heel, your, your foot back, your, your heel towards your, your booty and feel that stretch along the front of your thigh. Uh, if you can, if you can kind of extend your hip back, which means that you're just kind of, instead of your, your foot or your, your knee, the front of your thigh being directly underneath your core, reach it back behind you. Like you were pushing off during the running motion. All right. Push it back behind you while also still pulling that, that healed up towards your booty. And you'll feel it higher in your quad and into that hip flexor area. So that's, that's the first step stretching the, the, the quads, stretching the hip flexors. There's other stretches you can do, but that's, that's the easiest one to try to explain uh, on the podcast. Next thing you can do. Work on strengthening and activating and engaging your glutes. So a lot of times when people have hip flexor problems, it's because their, their glutes are weak. Their glutes aren't engaged while they're running. And so your hip flexors are doing more work. So what we really want is we want our, our glutes. We want that booty to be firing during your run and really extending the leg back behind instead of, instead of the, the quad and hip flexor taking over and trying to, to pull it forward as much. It, it might sound like, like, well, yeah, it's going to do both those things. And yeah, it really is going to do both of those things. But if you're, if your glute is powering you forward, it makes a world of difference. It takes all kinds of pressure off of your hip flexors. It also can help to kind of balance your pelvis because if you have weak glutes, tight hip flexors, your, your hip bones, your pelvic bones can literally rotate forward a little bit, which then puts pressure, puts tension on your lower back puts tension on your hamstrings. It can create a whole, whole mess of problems. So strengthen the heck out of your booty. Do the squats, do the lunges, do the clams, do the, the donkey kicks, do all those, those exercises, the hip extensions, all the things that target your glutes, get those firing and work on, on extending your hip behind you when you're running, which is going to help to, to fire your glutes more while you're running. And again, take some of that pressure off of your hip flexors. Last but not least, Maybe the most important, one of the biggest reasons that so many people have tight hip flexors has nothing to do with running. Running doesn't help the situation, of course, but the reason that, that so many people in, in America, in 
modern industrialized world today have tight hip flexors is because we sit so much sitting at the office for eight or 10 hours, sitting in the car, sitting on the couch, sitting at the dinner table, sit, 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 sit. Guess what happens when you sit? That hip flexor shrinks, right? Even though you're not actively firing the muscle, you're, 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 you're sitting at that 90 degree angle through your hip, right? Which means the hip flexor is shortened and over weeks, months, years of having your hip flexor in a shortened position for 10 hours a day, 14 hours a day, 16 hours a day. Guess what? That muscle loses some of its, its mobility, some of its range of motion. So as much as you can throughout the day, stand up. Now that doesn't mean you have to convert to a, a fully standing desk and stand the whole time. That might be the ideal, but that, that doesn't mean we have to do that. What we really need to do is focus on switching positions as fairly regularly throughout the day. So, you know, if you have, I don't know what you're, what you do for a living, Jackie, but for anybody who, who wants to, to help loosen up the hip flexors a little bit, if you find yourself at a job where you're sitting for 60 minutes, 80 minutes, uh, six hours straight, figure out ways to stand more throughout the day. Maybe that means have a, a, a smaller coffee cup at your desk. So you got to get up to refill it more often. Smaller water bottle. You got to get up to refill it more often. Drink more water. Drink more coffee because then you got to go to the bathroom more often. So you're getting up and moving more frequently to go to the bathroom. When you're on a telephone call, instead of sitting at the desk, can you stand up while you're on the call? When you're recording a Q&A episode of the podcast, instead of sitting on the chair, can I stand up? Answer is yes. That's exactly what I'm doing right now. When I record these episodes... I'm always standing. Why? Because it just gets me out of that seated, that seated position. Helps me to, to work some of those muscles in my core. Helps me to stretch out my hip flex a little bit. Because while I was writing the, the blog post for this episode that took two hours, I sat down through the whole thing. So now I'm standing up, trying to lengthen those muscles a little bit. So are there ways that you can, throughout your day, stand up? Even if it's not for huge durations, can you get up for a minute here and there? Can you get up for a minute while you're on the phone? while you're texting your kids, while you're on Facebook, whatever, get up several times throughout the day, you know, set, set the alarm, set the, the, you know, a lot of the, the times the Fitbits have those little reminders, different devices have those little reminders, set it, a reminder on your phone, just get up and move for two minutes every two hours, All right? The more the merrier, but let's start somewhere manageable. And if you can do that, that can really help to loosen things up because you're just forcing that muscle to lengthen out a little bit throughout the day. It doesn't get as tight from just sitting all day, which hopefully then leads to some of the, the focus on stretching helps to, to keep it in that longer state, you know, instead of it just being crunched down all the time. So, uh, stretch, work on your glutes. Most importantly, try to stand up as much as you can throughout the day, or at least break up those long periods of sit of sitting. And that's going to do wonders for your hip flexors. So thank you for the question, Jackie. Hope all that makes sense. Next question comes from Jill. Actually, two questions. First one, thoughts on the quote-unquote right amount of upper, of upper body movement. Um, so I'm assuming you mean like while you're running, Jill, like what, like how much, how stable should things be? How much movement do we want? Um, I think that for me, my, my thoughts are the right amount of, of upper body movement is whatever is kind of natural for you, just trying to run relaxed. Try not to think too much about it, right? There's going to be, obviously, there's going to be some arm swing. Now, when it comes to the arm swing, the one thing that I would encourage is to try to focus on swinging your arms as as much in a straight plane front to back as possible. So they're coming out from your sides, your your elbows back, hands forward as you're running, right? What we what we want to try to avoid if possible is the idea of swinging your arm across 
your body. So your right arm, instead of swinging straight forward, it swings across to like your left shoulder, across the midline, center down through your chest, and then back. And then your left swings across to your right shoulder and back and forth. We th- that, that sideways arm swing or that lateral arm swing causes some issues, core stability. Uh, it, it diverts momentum. If we wanted to get real physics and things like that, you're swinging arm forward, you're, you're pushing your body forward. You're swinging your arm side to side. Your body's moving side to side. Your upper body's moving side to side, which isn't efficient when you're trying to run forward. So trying to just keep things going forward, forward and back from the arms. You don't need over-exaggerated arm movement. Um, but just, you know, instead of what's the right amount, just kind of what feels, what feels right. That's, that's the name of the game to me is just trust, you know, kind of like the, the shoe question that Nancy asked about orthotics and whatnot, just trust your body to do what it does. You know, it might not look like everybody else, but that's your body isn't the same as everybody else's. So trust your body, trust your, your arm swing. Um, just try not to be going too much side to side. If that's what's natural, then that's, it might be a fight. You're going to have to fight for a while. It might not be worth fighting, but for the most part, you can keep things just moving forward to back. That's, that's the ideal type of arm swing. And then how much, I mean, just, you know, what, what feels natural is the right amount. Uh, second question. Also, what are your favorite places to point people towards for lower body form infographics? I'm a super visual learner and I'm overwhelmed by what the general internet has to offer on these two subjects. Um, when it comes to infographics, Jill, I, I apologize. I don't have much there. Um, I'm sure there's, you know, just like anything on the internet, right? There's, there's dozens of good resources and there's dozens of terrible resources. Um, but I don't know as far as like what the best places to go would be. Um, so I, I apologize towards that. If you have specifics on, you know, what you're looking for lower body, let me know. And we'll try to, to nail it down. I'll try to find some, some good things to send you, but I don't have like a good place to point people towards. I mean, you know, maybe some of the, some of the, the stuff that, that some of the, I, I wouldn't say runner's world, but they're, they're garbage these days. So not runner's world. Um, but you know, look at some of the good running stuff. Um, Oh, and I can't even think of anything off the top of my head. Um, yeah, I got nothing. I got nothing. I'm not even going to try to make make something up here. Um, you know, I apologize. This is twice twice this episode. I literally have no no good answer to offer to some of these questions. But but yeah, I've never really looked for good infographics. But I'll I'll start looking for some. And if I find them, I'll certainly send them your way. And again, if you have certain specific issues or, or questions that you have on lower body form or lower body, whatever, or upper body, whatever, uh, let me know. And I'll see if I can find something that, that seems like it visually explains what I'm trying to explain here, uh, through my, through my oration that maybe isn't uh, helping you as much as a picture would. So I'll, I'll try to find some things and send them your way, or at least post them in the group, uh, and tag you in them as well. So, uh, sorry that I don't have a better answer for that one, Jill, but hopefully we can find something and send it your way. Uh, sooner rather than later. Next question from uh, Chris, different Chris, Chris in Georgia says, what is the best way to handle muscle cramps out on a run? Uh, Chris, this is one of those instances. And, and this isn't the answer you're looking for. I, I, I'm sure of it. Um, prevention is better than cure. Prevention is better than cure. Once your muscles really start cramping, like you can keep going, you can power through, but they ain't going to stop. They're not going to stop until you rest, till you relax, till you rehydrate, till you balance out the the uh, electrolytes going on and, and you're not going to be able to do that while you're moving. It's just not going to happen. Not going to happen. Uh, once your body starts cramping, once your body, your body gets to that point, like, like I said, you can power through it. You can try to do some stretching. You can try to get some, some electrolytes in. You can try to get some fluids in, try to eat a banana, try to do some, some pickle juice or eat some pickles or whatever. Like all those things might help a little bit, especially if you're not like in serious cramp bill. But if it's, if it's like hardcore cramping, 
either shut it down or, or tough it out. I, I, that's, those are the options. And when you shut it down, then you, you cool down, let the body relax, get some fluids in you, get some salts in you, get some nutrition in you. All those types of things will help. But in the moment, once, once you start cramping, it's, it's, they're there. They're there. Uh, I wish I had a better answer for you. I wish I had some miracle cure. Um, but I don't, I don't like it's, that's the nature of the beast. And, and my experience is trying to stretch them out during a run only makes them worse. Your mileage may vary on that. I know some people like do a little bit of stretching. That seems like it helps for me. No, for me, if I feel like I'm starting to cramp a little bit, just keep on. Don't stop. Like for me, that's what works best is just don't stop. Don't stretch. Don't just go one foot in front of the other and get to the damn finish line as quickly as possible. Well, you know, as quickly as possible relative. I'm not going to take off on a sprint if I've still got four miles to go, but just steady pace, eyes on the prize, get to the finish line. And then hopefully things don't blow up on me until then, you know, but, uh, man, when you're out and about the cramps start happening, not a good place to be, uh, for sure. Next two questions from, uh, miss melody with nothing, with nothing from, uh, the Mr. Short, at least right here. So that that's helpful. Uh, no, 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 uh, shenanigans on these questions. Uh, Melody asks, can you please explain lactate threshold so I can understand it? I can try. I can try Melody. So here we go. Here's, here's my attempt at explaining lactate threshold, uh, as clearly and concisely as possible. Please note for those of you that are exercise physiologists out there, I'm trying to make this as, I don't want to say dumbed down because that's not how I mean it, but I'm trying to make this as simple as possible. So don't, don't get on my case if I don't get all the intricacies correct here or intricacies is absolutely perfect. We're going for general explanation. Okay. So I, I understand that this isn't the, uh, the master's level exercise physiology answer. This is the, Hey, I'm trying to understand lactate threshold. Can you explain it to me? Answer. So, you know, just bear with me on that one a little bit. So here we go, Melody. Here is, here is lactate threshold in maybe not quite in a nutshell, but in a, in an almost nutshell, uh, as simple as possible. So when you run hard, part of the, the, the energy production process, when you're running anaerobically means you're running, you're, you're requiring more energy than you can produce while you're from, from the oxygen you're breathing. So I'm already getting a little technical here. When you run hard, your body produces lactate as a byproduct, waste product almost, of the energy production process. Okay? Hard running, your body produces lactate. Totally natural, happens to all of us. All right? The harder you run or the longer you continue to run at that hard level, the more lactate starts to build up. Right? Because while your body's producing lactate, it can't as efficiently process the lactate and get it out of your system. So your lactate threshold is the point where your body's working so hard that it's producing more lactate than it can process at the same time. And what happens then, that lactate level or your lactic acid level builds up in your blood, builds up in your, in your muscles. And what lactic acid causes, what lactate causes is muscle failure. So to, to try to, again, make that as simple as possible, when you have too much lactate in your system, your muscles can't fire as, as strongly, as forcefully, as powerfully as they, as they had been able to. How that relates to us as runners, we can't keep running as hard, all right? We have to slow down because our muscles can't keep going at the same level. When we slow down, we're no longer running as hard. We're running easier. 
we're not producing as much lactate anymore. And if we slow down enough, we're not producing any lactate anymore. And then our bodies are able to process that lactate, get it out of the system. And then we're able to run hard again, which is kind of the theory behind intervals, right? You run hard, you build up some of that lactate, you recover, flushes it out, run hard again. So lactic threshold is that point where you kind of cross from, we can keep doing this to, we can't keep doing this anymore. No longer sustainable. And so by trying to improve our lactate threshold through doing some hard training runs, things of that nature, we try to push that line a little bit to where we used to be able to run for 75 seconds before we reached lactate threshold, but now we can run for two minutes. Or we used to be able to run seven miles before we really started to fade. Now we can run at the same level of intensity for 13 miles. We can get to the end of the half marathon before we start to fade by improving our body, our, our body's ability to process that lactate, get it out of our system and keep our muscles firing at a, at a high level. So I hope that that makes sense. I hope that wasn't as clear as mud trying to keep it simple while trying to not miss too many steps of the process. Um, again, exercise, the exercise physiologists among us don't, don't send, keep your hate mail. I don't need it. I know that that wasn't the perfect definition, but I think I got the gist of it. And Melody, I hope that you got the gist of my gist. If you get the gist. Yeah. Next question. Also from Melody. Uh, I don't seem to, she says, I don't seem to do well racing in the heat. In theory, if I live somewhere warm year round and trained, would I eventually adapt or am I just predisposed? Yes. And yes. And so there's no question that first and foremost, let me back up to a second. Melody, everybody struggles to some degree or another in the heat. Okay. It's just, it's just a fact you're running, you're generating body heat. It's hot. It's humid outside. Like your body can't handle pushing too hard while also trying to cool itself. Cooling itself is always a top priority. So you have to slow down. Like, like it's just, it's not something that anybody excels at. Some do better than others. Of course, some can handle a little bit better. And certainly if you live somewhere like Florida, like Texas, like some Southern places where it's hot and humid, the vast majority of the year. Yeah. We're a little bit more acclimated to it. Our bodies are a little bit more able to cool itself easier. Maybe we're a little bit more, uh, able to understand that we just need to slow down a little bit. Like we can't push as hard in the, in the hot, hot days, hot, humid weather. Um, I don't know there, but there's definitely some physiological adaptations that happen. There's, there's some, there's some ways that your body adapts to those demands. Just like if you live at altitude, if you live out in, in Colorado, your body adapts to running at altitude with less oxygen. It's not that it's easier. It's not that it doesn't affect them, but it's a, it, their, their body adapts a little bit. So they're more able to handle it. Same thing with the heat. That said, it would never like completely adapt. You might be a little bit more predisposed to it. I don't, I don't know that there's genetic factors, but there very well could be. But I think that, that in my experience, and this is all anecdotal. So there's the, don't check the science on this. Cause I don't know that there is any science on this. But I, I feel like those that struggle the most in the heat, and I'm not saying that this is you, but those that live in Florida, I guess, those that I see on, a lo- on the local running circuits, those that struggle the most in the heat tend to be those that let the heat bother them mentally before the race even starts. So they're the ones that show up at the starting line and they're bitching and complaining about, oh my God, it's so hot today and I'm not going to be able to blah, blah, blah. Well, well, yeah, you're defeating yourself mentally right there. And maybe there's a little bit of that with humility. And I don't know that there is, and I'm not, not trying to diagnose on that, on this front, but maybe there's a little bit of, of extra anxiety, 
extra nervousness that crops up when you look at the forecast for tomorrow's race and you go, oh man, it's going to be warm tomorrow. Like maybe there's a little bit in there in your head that just starts to, to get you down. And then you get a little bit more anxious. Then you're a little bit more wound up tight. And then you get out there and you're not as able to relax a bit and just get in the flow and enjoy the run because you're waiting for the shoe to drop. You're waiting for the overheating to happen. And then, you know, not that I'm the biggest believer in all the woo woo, but you know, you almost maybe think it into existence as opposed to if you just go out there and go, Hey, it's, it's hot. This is my attitude on the days that it's, it's a hot weather day. It's hot. I'm gonna do the best I can, but probably not going to be a PR day. Probably going to have to slow down a bit. Might have to do some extra walking. Might have to make sure I'm, I'm hydrating a little bit more than normal because it's hot. Say la vie. I live in Florida. That's what I signed up for. I don't know if that helps or not, Melody, but it's something that, that again, we all are impacted by the heat. But I think that if we can kind of mentally wrap our heads around the idea that I can, I can still do this. May not be my best day, but I can still do this. I think that, that gives us a, a, a chance to, to still go out there and have a good day. Not the best day, but a good day. So, so I don't know that that's an, an adaptation that happens from living somewhere that's warm year round, but maybe it's a, it's a paradigm shift that might help you this summer, uh, to, to do a little bit, have a, have a few more, more good days than bad days when you have the, the heat of the summer this summer. So, um, Again, don't know if that helps, but that's kind of my thoughts on the heat. Yes, there's physiological impacts. Yes, we, we need to make sure we're, we're fueling better, wearing the right clothes, doing wearing things that breathe. Um, all of those things are important. But I also think there's a piece of the puzzle that that is don't let the heat beat you before the race even starts from the mental side of things that I think, again, I've seen it down here where people just, they just, I would say literally, but it's not literally, it's metaphorically where they just metaphorically melt before the race even starts because, Oh, it's so hot. And what am I going to do? You're going to get out there and run. That's what you do. That's what we do. We live in Florida. We're going to run. Hope somewhere in there that there's something that, that might be useful for you, Melody, but thank you for the question. Chris, next question, not Chris short, but Chris from Vermont again. Uh, how do you know when your shoes are ready to be replaced? I don't have, I mean, I have an answer. Chris, but it's not, it's not probably what you're looking for. Cause I don't, I don't buy into that whole shoes need to be replaced between 300 and 500 miles mumbo jumbo. I've had way too many shoes that I've had to replace at 200 miles. I've had way too many, I've had way, way too many shoes or maybe, maybe not enough shoes. Maybe that's the right way to say it. I haven't had enough shoes that, uh, I've gotten six, seven, 800 miles on before they need to be replaced, but I've had, I've had them. would love to have more. So for me, the, the key is all just how I feel just listening to my body real simple. When, you know, I go out for an easy three or four or five miler and like my knees are sore, my ankles are sore, my hips are sore. It only takes one or two of those to go, ah, wait a second, let me check the shoes. And then sure enough, I look at them and like the threads, the, the tread's gone. They're just completely worn out. Like, oh yeah, probably time to retire these. All right. But as long as I'm going out there and running and nothing really feels too bad, everything kind of feels normal during and after, then I feel like my shoes still have life in them. And so, you know, every shoe is different. Every, every person is certainly differently or is, is certainly different as well. So I, I can't ascribe to, you know, 300 miles, 400 miles. Listen to your body. When, when you start to feel a little bit sore, a little bit more sore than you, than you would expect in places that never really bother you. But like, why is my knee bothering me? Why is my hip bothering? That makes no sense. Oh, maybe I need some new shoes. Then check your shoes. So that's kind of how I know when it's time to uh, think about replacing the shoes and, and uh, you know, by keeping several pairs of shoes in the rotation anyway, 
like I haven't really like had to retire a pair of shoes due to, to out wearing them in a while. Um, but you know, that's, that's me being lucky with, with some of the, the partnerships I have and the relationships I have, where I get shoes before I need them, but that's, that's how I do it going forward is as long as my body's happy, shoes still have enough life. But when the, when the body stops being happy, time to get, get, get it some, something else in to, uh, to replace it. A couple more questions from Melody. Kind of getting into the, the home stretch here. I think there's seven or eight questions left to go. Uh, powering through. Actually, it's going a little bit quicker than I expected. Uh, hopefully, that means the answers aren't uh, worthless. Hopefully, it just means I, a bit less of this drivel for each each answer and just getting to the point and answering the questions, which is what we should what it should have been doing anyway. Uh, but uh, Melly asks, if you could have one do-over race, which one would it be and why? She said, excluding Goofy for obvious reasons. Honestly, I wouldn't change anything. I mean, you know, I would well, I would change a couple things about Goofy, but nothing major. I would have brought my shoes, of course. Um, but, but that one, I would, that one wouldn't be a do over, even though I had the opportunity. If I, if I had the opportunity to do a race over and, and there is a bit of recency bias here, there's probably some that are farther back that, that, you know, kind of, uh, I, I don't remember some of the rough patches or I don't remember some of the things that, that went wrong that maybe, you know, a do over would help with. Um, but I think that if I could have any, a do over in the of races I ran in the last year or so, uh, I'd have to flip a coin, but choose between either the cannonball marathon, which I ran in, in, uh, what was it? September, October, Cannonball Marathon in October, or the Sweat, Swat, and Swear uh, 50K that I ran in May. All right, and in both cases, the reason I'd want to do over is the same. Both cases, I went out too fast, so I ended up going out faster than I should have. Uh, thought that I was going to be better suited to to run the entire distance, and my world came crashing down at a couple points on both of those races, and ended up walking a lot in the last like third or so of each of those races. So if I if I could do one or both of those races over over um, I would definitely pace myself better. Just go out a bit slower, go out a bit easier, trust the process, trust that these are going to be long days, you know, marathon 50 K. Um, I don't need to go out like a bat out of hell, which is kind of what I did on both those races. And I should know better, but you know, sometimes you get caught up with hoping, Hey, today might be a really good day. Um, and, and I, I was reminded that going out hot is not very often the best way to do it. So I would love to redo one or both of those races to just pace a little bit better and see how much better my day would have gone had I, you know, not been foolish in the first, you know, half to, to two thirds of the race and then paid for it hard at the end. Um, another question from Melody, what's your favorite part about being a coach? Uh, great. Thank you for that question. That's a, that's a good one. And it's, it, this, this might kind of sound a little cliche or like, you know, pandering to the, to the audience, but really it's, it's the relationships. It's the friendships that, that I've, I've formed, especially the, with those that I've, I've been working with for literally for multiple years. You know, the, the ones who I know, uh, I mean, I don't know, but like, I know their kids, I know their spouses. Um, I know what they do for a living. I know how their job impacts their running. Uh, I know, you know, just, I, I like, I, I, even though a lot of these folks I haven't met in person yet, will make it happen one day, but haven't made, met everybody in person yet. But like, I'm like legit friends with them. Yes. We have a coaching relationship. Yes. There's, there's, there's that thing going on as well, but like I get Christmas cards from people, you know, like, like I, I, I'm on again, like on a first name basis. It's not, it's not when I'm getting a note. It's not, Oh, my husband, this It's like, Oh, you know, Jim, Jim said this and blah, 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 blah. And it's like, like, there's no question. Like, I know, I know who we're talking about. I know what's going on. Um, and so, so those relationships, those friendships, uh, that have been long lasting 
and and obviously the new ones are fun too and hopefully we'll get to that point where i've been working with some of the folks that are, are newer to the crew for two years three years four years down the road really get to know them well and have a great relationship with them but that's that's my favorite part second favorite part would be when when the the people i'm working with have great days on the on the course uh it's like i've said before i'll say it again uh as a coach since i've been been really getting into coaching um Sure, I hope that I have good days, but I, I would I would sacrifice never having another PR for my my athletes to always have PRs every day. Like, just I love when when things go together and how happy they are, and uh, you know, like that's awesome. That's awesome. But the relationships, hands down, the best part of being a coach. Um, Chris Short, last question from him this month, and a, another serious one, I think. Um, not I think I know. Uh, how often or when do you recommend taking a cutback week? Whew, this is this is one of those questions that it's it's almost impossible for me to give some type of of one size fits all answer um, because there's so many variables, right? Like like so starting starting before we get into all the variables though. For those that don't know, what is a cutback week? So when you're building up towards a race goal, half marathon, marathon, whatever, building up building up trying to to peak on race day, you don't just like ideally at least. You don't just like steadily keep ramping up, ramping up, ramping up. What you want to do is almost make like a step scenario. So you ramp up for a few weeks and maybe have a, a week where you don't increase, where you cut back. Maybe it's even a decrease a little bit. So it's a little bit of a downturn just to give your body a little break, give your body a little chance to recover, rejuvenate, you know, cause you've been working hard for two, three, four weeks in a row. Time to back off a little bit, let your body breathe. And then back to climbing, back to building, back to, to ramping up in the right direction. Another few weeks down the road, cut back again. So how often, I mean, you know, probably for a lot of folks, it's about once a month, could be more, could be less again, lots of variables. How long have you been training? Um, how experienced of a runner are you? What's your current fitness like any injuries of late? Uh, how far away are we from your goal? Uh, what's, you know, what's, what's the mileage been looking like? How's the body feeling? Um, what's going on in your life? You know, can we, do you have a vacation coming up where, it's, it's one of those vacations where you can just run like crazy. Well, then let's run like crazy. Is it a vacation coming up where you're coming to Disney with the family and like, Hey, that's a great week for a cutback. Don't even worry about running. You're going to be on your feet, shuffling around, doing things like let's cut back then. So, you know, there's, there's so many different factors that go into it, but, but loose rule of thumb, maybe one week a month of cutting back, you know, how much do you cut back? I don't know, 15, 20%, 25%. Again, rule of thumb, which isn't worth very much. Um, but that's at least a starting point. And then you kind of adjust it as you go. Uh, obviously, um, some folks need more of them. Some folks can get away with, with fewer, but it's all kind of knowing your body, listening to your body, uh, and being smart, keeping the long-term goals in mind. It's not all about just hammering it every week. It's about hammering it, but then letting your body recover a little bit, cutting back, giving your body a little break, getting a little extra sleep, a little more time for the little things, getting stronger, and then moving forward again. So, you know, once a, one week a month, maybe something like that, roughly, but it's, it's a sliding scale for sure, Chris. So, uh, take that with a grain of salt, everybody that about once a, once a month, sometimes more, sometimes less, eh, kind of something like that. Uh, Barb's question. Did you stick to your marathon race plan when you ran the goofy challenge? So kind of, kind of, I stuck to my marathon plan. Yes. My half marathon plan. Not so much. So, uh, in case you're, you are new to the show, new to the program, don't know what's going on. A couple of weeks ago, I ran the goofy challenge at, at Walt Disney world, which was the, uh, half marathon on Saturday, followed by the full marathon on Sunday morning. Uh, first time doing back-to-back races like that. Never done it before. I uh, was really looking forward to it. My plan was simple. I was going to run to the first photo opportunity character stop, which if you don't know anything about Disney races, that's, that's one of the, the 
perks, one of the features of the Disney races. They have various characters out on the course, take pictures, the whole nine yards. So I was going to run to the first character, stop, take a picture, run to the next character, stop, take a picture, rinse and repeat both days, Saturday and Sunday, get all the pictures. I wasn't worried about my time, things like that. Well, like I mentioned earlier, Saturday ended up with not the right shoes. Also ended up getting to the starting corral area later than planned. So much so that I ended up in corral D instead of corral B may not sound like a big deal, but the difference is a couple thousand people that were in front of me that I wasn't planning on being in front of me, which means that there was a lot longer lines at most of the character stops than I was hoping for than I was expecting had I been in corral B. So got to the first character. The line was ridiculous. I was just like, Nope, blowing past this one on Saturday. Got to the next character and I was like, gosh, this line's ridiculous too, but I'm here to have fun. I'm here to take pictures. Like I'm not going to PR anyway, especially with these damn shoes on. So I'll stop and take pictures. Stood in some long lines for the next two or three or four characters. Started getting a little bit pissy, a little bit frustrated. Mostly at myself. I mean, it wasn't anybody that anybody was doing anything wrong. I was mad that I didn't have the right shoes. Mostly mad I didn't get to the corrals in time. So now all of a sudden I'm starting, you know, again, behind more people, more people in line. Uh, so I started trying to like run faster in between each um, character to try to get past some people and try to pass the people that are, you know, that I've seen in line, three characters, four characters in a row. They're stopping for pictures just like I am. Well, let me get in front of these folks. So there's a few less people in front of me. Didn't really work out. Skipped several, not, not all, but skipped probably three or four more character stops the rest of the way because again, the lines were just so long and I was not in the right frame of mind because I was pissy pants about the whole situation. Um, again, just at myself, not at the situation at myself for how, how I made the situation, what it was. And so I, I got probably three quarters of the characters on Saturday plan was to get all of them came up short Sunday. However, for the marathon, not only did I have the correct shoes, I also was in the correct corral. So again, there was a few thousand less people in front of me. So by the time I got, I stopped at every character on Sunday even the ones that like weren't real characters. They're just like, you know, people that were out talking or whatever. I was like, Hey, I'll stop and get a picture. Like, I don't know who you are, but whatever. Um, but ran through, didn't stop at any, or didn't miss any stops. None of my stops were more than like four or five people long. By the time I got towards the last half of the race, most of my stops were no weight at all. Um, and so, yeah, I, I stopped at every character on Sunday, had a great time. Um, loved it. Loved it. Definitely a great a great way to run the race. Wish I could have had it locked in on Saturday as well. Still kicking myself a little bit for being late on Saturday uh, and not getting there in enough time to get to the corrals and avoid some of those longer lines for the characters um, like I was able to do on, on Sunday. But uh, overall, mostly stuck to the plan and had a great time because of it. Lots of great photos as well. Uh, so thank you, Barb, for asking. Uh, three questions left, two from Tom, one from Nancy. The first one from Tom, I just ran my fourth half marathon, but my first where I spent significant part of the race in the pain cave. This was also a smallish race with virtually no crowd support. What are some tips for uh, getting out of the pain cave and finishing a race strong? So uh, Tom, I think that uh, a couple things. One, I think that it's just kind of something that the more times you, you not that you're trying to spend more time in the pain cave, but the more times you do it, the easier it gets to just keep pushing through because you trust that if I keep going, I'm going to come out of this and be able to finish strong. 
You're going to catch that second wind somewhere, uh, and it's going to work out. So I think that, that sometimes experience is a great teacher. So sorry that you got stuck in the pain cave a little bit, but congratulations on pushing through, still having a good race, and experiencing it once now. So hopefully the next time, the experience won't be quite as bad. A couple of tips to make it a bit easier, I think. I don't know if easier is quite the right word, but um, one thing that I'm a huge fan of, huge proponent of, is saving my music until I need it, aka until I'm in the pain cave or until things are really starting to get difficult. So I'm not one to like tell people not to listen to music during a race because I do it, but I don't start with my music anymore. I used to. I used to be that guy at the starting corral, standing there waiting for the, the gun to go off. You know, I got my music in my ears and I'm bobbing around and I got the music going. But I kind of found that by the time I got to the later stages of the race, the music was just kind of background noise. It was just kind of white noise almost, even though it, was, it wasn't white noise, but it wasn't enough to like distract me. It wasn't enough to keep me out of the pain cave anymore because I'd, I'd, I'd kind of gotten numb to the music in my ears the whole way. So now what I do is I plan to run the, the first two-thirds, the first three-quarters of a race, no music. Still have my headphones with me, have them tucked in my pocket, in my pouch, in my in my uh, vest, in my belt, where, whatever I've got that I'm carrying that day. I've got my headphones with me, just not turned on, not listening to anything. Well, I'm listening to the, the sounds of the race, hopefully finding a runner or two that I can talk to along the way, somebody I can settle in with, have a little conversation as we go. Maybe not. Maybe I'm just listening to other people talk, other people's conversations, the wind blowing, the sound of the feet, whatever. I'm, I'm into the environment. And then when I get to the later stages of the race, when the pain cave starts to, to, to happen, starts to, to embrace me, envelop me, pull out those headphones, fire up a little Dave Matthews. And all of a sudden it's new. It's fresh. It's not, it's not something that I've gotten accustomed to over the first, you know, 20 miles of the marathon. It's something that's fresh at mile 20 and it's exciting and boom, able to keep going, able to keep going. So that's, that might be one thing. If you're, if you're, you know, up for having some headphones, save that music till you need it and then bring it out, baby, bring it out and go. Another thing that can be helpful is having a mantra. You know, we've talked about mantras before on the show with various folks. Um, you know, I went ahead and got my mantra tattooed on my arm. I'm not saying you need to be that extreme, although maybe that works for you. I don't know. Um, but you know, when I'm, when I'm running now and I'm having a rough day, I can just look at my arm and go, take the next step, take the next step, just keep going, keep taking the next step and just kind of repeating that, having that reminder for me. Maybe you write it on your arm on a Sharpie the day of the race, just is, so it's that, that less permanent reminder, but you know, I can do this. I can do hard things, have fun, take the next step, run strong, whatever, whatever your mantra might be, but having that mantra that you can tap into and just kind of convince yourself to keep going can help you get through the pain cave. Last but not least, there's science behind this. This isn't just me making stuff up. Smile, smile. If we're smiling, laughing, joking, it, it does something in the brain that inhibits the pain receptors, helps you to feel better. Even if you're faking the smile, even if it's not a serious smile, it still works, still helpful. So if you see somebody sign, smile, recognize the sign. Try to just put a smile on your face. Like, yeah, this sucks, but man, I, I paid to do this. I'm ridiculous. I paid money to be here. Smile, smile, smile. It'll help you. It'll help you. So those are some, some things you can do, some suggestions I might have. Hopefully it helps you the next time you're in the pain cave um, because it's not a whole lot of fun to be there, but it's awesome. That's It's an awesome feeling when you get through it and you're like, all right, we're out of it. Let's go. Let's go. And some music, mantra, smiling, all those things can help get through it a little bit quicker 
which <laughs> even just a little bit makes a big difference on race day, as I'm sure you experienced, Tom. So uh, thank you for that question. Another one from Tom. What is your opinion on post-race supplements like Tailwind? Not a fan. Not a fan. And this isn't anything against Tailwind. I use Tailwind on race day for, for fuel during a race. Um, even though I'm a low-carb guy on race day, I'm, a, I'm okay with a little bit of carbs. I'm okay with spiking spiking the old energy stores a little bit with some, with some simple carbohydrates to, to power forward. Absolutely, I'm okay with it. But when it comes to post-race, eh, no. I don't want that garbage. I don't want all those the fake processed, um, made-in-a-lab recovery drinks. No, 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 no. Because most of them are just full of sugar anyway. And I don't, I don't need the sugar at that point. The race is done. The race is done. I don't need a bunch of sugar for, for quick energy. I want real food. I want stuff that, that is healthy-ish. Um, I want stuff that's fat. Because I'm being a fat-fueled guy, a fat-adapted guy, like like that's where I, I feel better. So give me some peanut butter, give me some buttery coffee, some coconut oil on my coffee, something. Give me some give me some coffee first and foremost. Um, but I don't need a bunch of chemicals and mumbo jumbo and BS in it, and overpriced at that. Although you can make an argument, Starbucks coffee would be very much overpriced, and I wouldn't argue with you there either. Um, but I I do not have a positive outlook on most post-race supplements, recovery drinks. I think they're a money grab. And I think that most of us would be just as well off, if not better off, focusing on real food after a race, after a hard effort, than trying to slam down some protein recovery garbage that's full of sugar. Um, but there's some bias in there, admittedly. So take it as what you will. Um, but I don't think they're necessary. I don't take them. I don't use them. Never had a problem. So, so there's that. Last question from Nancy, setting me up on a tee with this one. So I appreciate you, Nancy. Um, who should get a running coach? Sell me on the benefits of having a coach and how do you know it's the right fit? So um, who should get a running coach? Running coach. Great question to ask a running coach, right? Like everybody should get a running coach. No, 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 no. Just kidding. Just kidding. Um, I'm firm of the belief that that no one, quote unquote, should get a running coach. All right. Yes, you heard that correctly. I'm saying no one, maybe not no one should. No one needs to get a running coach. That's that's the right terminology. That's the right vernacular. Running coaches are a luxury. We're a want, not a need. Okay? So to try to tell somebody, oh, you should get a coach? Like, well, no, like all the information is out there. Nothing that I'm doing as a coach is so revolutionary that you can't find it on Google. You can't find it on the website. You can't find it on the podcast. You can't find it on a dozen other books and, and things from people that are far smarter than me are out there. All that information is out there. You don't need me to write your plans. You don't need me to tell you what to do. That said, I wouldn't be doing what I was doing if I didn't think that there was some type of a benefit that I could provide. I wouldn't be doing what I was doing if I didn't think that I was actually a, at least a little bit helpful to the folks that pay me each month to to coach them. So what what can a coach provide is maybe the way I want to answer your question. Not Not so much who should get one, but what kind of things can a coach provide so you can decide whether it's you, Nancy, or whether it's somebody else listening, whether this might be something that makes sense for them, that would be good for that individual. So I think that one thing that is easy to overlook is that for newer runners, a running coach can be great. And I think a lot of times newer runners think, well, I'm not, I'm not quote unquote good enough yet. I'm not serious enough about my running yet to, to make getting a coach worthwhile. But that's actually maybe almost the opposite way of thinking because if you're a new runner, a coach can really help you to minimize or avoid some of the quote unquote stupid mistakes that certainly that I've made, that a lot of folks have made along the way because they just simply didn't know any better. 
you know, you get somebody who's more experienced, somebody who's kind of a, you know, a coach, a mentor, uh, to help you along the way avoid, you know, don't do this. You know, don't, don't feel like you need to run as hard as you can every single day. Cause that's not good for you. You know, that's the type of thing that, that again, I used to think, Hey, I just need to run hard all the time. That's how I'm going to get faster. No, 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 not so much. So a coach can help you avoid some of those types of mistakes, especially for newer runners. Don't know any better. Not a bad idea to get a coach and avoid making some of those mistakes, avoid creating some bad habits that then have to be worked out of down the road. Lots of, lots of value for a newer runner to work with a coach that knows, that knows a little bit about what they're doing. Um, what else, who else can benefit from a coach or what, what other, some benefits that a good coach can provide? Coach can take the guesswork out of your training. So instead of going, well, I don't know, you know, should I do uh, 12 miles today or 14 miles today? Should I do 800 meters or a tempo run or 400 meters? Or I don't know what workouts to do. I'm not sure. Hemming and hawing. Like a coach just says, hey, do this. And you don't have to decide anymore. You don't have to weigh the pros and the cons. You just say, hey, the coach knows me. The coach knows what my goals are. I trust him or her. And if, if she says to do... 800 meter repeats, but by God, I'm going to do 800 meter, 800 meter repeats done case closed. None, none of that trying to make those decisions. You just, you, you know, the guesswork is removed. You do what you're told. That's what you're paying for as a coach or, or paying for from the coach is tell me what to do. I'll go do it. So that's, that's one benefit of having a coach. Um, you know, if you're somebody that kind of struggles with, with actually making the workouts happen, you've got all the great intentions, but life always seems to kind of get in the way. Not that, not that having a coach prevents life from getting in the way, but maybe you kind of have a little bit more gusto to make it happen when you know that the coach is going to be checking in on you. Hey, how did the run go yesterday? Oh, I, I didn't go because, you know, I, I, I had a hangnail. Oh, so a hangnail stopped you from getting your run in? Like, okay, but, you know, you sure you wanted, you know, you, you're serious about these goals, right? You're serious about trying to PR at this upcoming marathon, right? Well, could we have still gotten some, some miles in even though you had a hangnail? even though you had to work an extra half an hour late, even though this, that, or the other. And, and for me as a coach, I'm not trying to do that to, to guilt anyone into doing their work, but it's just that little bit of extra accountability of like, you know, yeah, I know, I know Denny's going to, going to ask me how things went the other day. So maybe I just need to make this happen somehow. So there's a little bit of that extra accountability, that little extra nudge to make sure you stay on track, keep moving forward. Again, not everybody needs that, but some folks that can be very valuable and well worth the investment of a coach. Um, another thing, a good coach can provide some good objective feedback as in when it's our own training, our own lives, we can get, we can get so zoomed in that we kind of lose sight of the forest for the trees. Having your coach who's invested in you, who wants you to succeed, but they're not quite as zoomed in. They can see the forest and the trees. And so having that little bit of an objective perspective, a little bit of a different perspective can, can help to maybe spot some things before they become a serious problem, address them, maybe sometimes keep you from lying to yourself about, yeah, I'm doing everything I can possibly do. Really? Are you? Because I'm looking at these, at these workouts going, I don't know that you are. Again, those can be hard conversations to have, but a good coach isn't afraid to have them, isn't afraid to be objective and point that stuff out. So those are just some of the many reasons. Um, maybe the, the best metaphor that I ever heard was my, my dear friend Susie uh, over at suslife.com um, who, who said, I think she said this on the podcast when one of the times that she was on the show. Uh, speaking of which, note to self, I need to get her on the show again because even if, even if we don't talk that much about running, she's just fun to talk to. Um, so it's a good excuse for me to talk to her at least, if nothing else. But anyway, I digress. Uh, she, she likened a running coach to a good server at a restaurant. Okay. You don't need to go to the restaurant. You can make your own food. 
You don't need to go to a high-end restaurant. You go to, to a, a McDonald's, a counter service type of place, right? But the reason that you go to the, the fancy restaurant is for those servers, those servers that, that know that this goes with that. And the good servers are the ones that they don't wait until you run out of water and you're kind of shaking your glass going, hey, can I get some more water over here? They're keeping an eye on things. They're going, oh, you know, Nancy's halfway done with her, with her water. Let me, let me make the rounds and make sure I'm filling up her, her glass or her coffee cup or her Coke or whatever. You know, they, they see that, that your kid dropped the, 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 uh, the knife on the floor. So they just come over with a knife before you can even have a chance to ask. Those are what the good servers do. They're not, they're not, their whole job isn't just about taking your order and bringing your food. Yeah. That's a big part of it. Just like as a running coach, my whole job isn't about writing your workouts and making sure you have your workouts to do. My job is a lot more than that. It's to pay attention to when you drop your fork, when your water bottle or when your water cup gets low, you know? When, when you need another napkin, when you're ready for your check, you know, it's, it's to, it's to, to know what's going on and, and solve those problems before you even need to ask or address those issues before you even ask. That's what a good running coach can do as well. So, you know, it's, it's, it's more than just having somebody write your workouts for you. It's a lot more than that, at least with a good, with a good coach, when you find the right fit. Now, how do you find the right fit? Last part of your question, Nancy, easier said than done. Um, but some ways that you can do it is to get to, you know, kind of quote unquote, especially if you're looking at working with somebody online virtually, get to know the coach, right? How do you do that? Follow, follow him or her on social media, follow their posts, see what kind of stuff they're talking about. Is it somebody that you feel like you can relate to or not so much? Read their blog, listen to their podcast, watch their YouTube videos, you know, spoiler alert. Hope this doesn't catch anybody by surprise, but not the sole reason that I do the podcast, but a big part of the reason I do the podcast is to let you guys get to know me so that if slash win, you're like, you know what? I kind of think I might want to coach for my next race. Man, I know, I know Diz. He talks, he talks gibberish on the podcast all the time. I feel like we already have a great relationship. I, I know I can, I can handle his stupid humor and his sarcasm and, uh, you know, all the, the random mumbo jumbo and the, the, the shenanigans that go on in the Facebook group. And, and by listening to him on the podcast, I think I'll give him a shot. So, so it, Spend some time, quote unquote, getting to know the coaches. If they're not willing to, to answer your questions, to do some type of Q&A thing, to, to reply to an email when you're not paying them, yeah, maybe they would prioritize it when, they're, when, they're paying, when you're paying them, but that's just kind of a douchey person in my book. Like, I reply to emails. It might take a few days, but I'll reply. You know, I answer questions on the podcast, I answer questions on YouTube. So you get to know me a little bit. You know, if, if we're the, if we're, if, if we're compatible, you know, read my emails. Those are kind of my, my, my blog posts. Again, you get to know me a bit that way. Last but not least, ask questions, email the coach, see if you can jump on the phone or, or have some emails back and forth to ask questions that you might be concerned about. What if I, what about this situation? How do you handle, you know, how, how do you appreciate the feedback? Is it feedback? Is it all online? Is it all via text? Are there regular phone calls, get the, get this, the, the details of what you're getting into before you sign up. If possible, ask if you can talk to other athletes that that runner has coached, not just the ones that they're currently coaching, but maybe some, some former athletes, you know, so you can find out why did you, why did you stop being coached by that person? Was it an amicable split or did they try to, to say, Hey, no, 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 no. Like just stay and we'll do this and we'll do that. Like, or were they just like, Hey, you know what? I, I appreciate the time we had to work together and you know, Best of luck going forward. If there's ever anything, anything else I can do for you, let me know. So that you know that if you sign up 
and it's not the right fit down the road, or you need to, to part ways for whatever reason, you have an idea of like, is this going to be a pain in the ass? Or is this guy or gal going to be like, hey, I understand. Thank you for the opportunity to work with you. And, you know, let me know if I can ever help you out anything else down the road. So ask questions, formulate that opinion. And to be quite honest, you still may not know if it's quite the right fit until you get into it a little bit. All right. But I like to think that if you're, if you're getting to know the person online, talking to folks, asking questions, you can get a pretty good idea of like, is this person and I just, are are we just such polar opposites that there's no way? Or like, is there at least a decent chance that we could be simpatico? And if there's at least a decent chance and it's something that you feel like would help you, something that you might want to do to help take your running to the next level, then you take the plunge, see what happens. And if it doesn't work out, then it doesn't work out. But you know, you you can find out pretty well, I think if it's going to be an oil and water situation, in which case you just don't, you don't even bother taking the plunge there, but it just takes, you know, a little bit of, of communication, conversation and see how things happen. But, uh, Nancy, if you're looking for a coach, I know guy, I know guy, (laughs) but, uh, Nancy, seriously, thank you for that, that question. Hopefully that, uh, gives you some things to think about. And again, maybe it gives some other folks some things to think about as well, because again, that's kind of why it's not the only reason why, but that's kind of why I do this stuff is to help grow the coaching side of my business as well, because I don't know what the numbers are, but it's, it's the vast majority of people that I've ever coached have started listening to the podcast. They get on the email list, they're in the Facebook group. And then when they're ready, it's the natural next progression because they know me already, or they know me enough to know, yeah, I like the guy's podcast, but I don't think he'd be the right coach for me. In which case, great, great. Good luck with the other coach that you, that you decide to work with. That's awesome. Best of luck. Please just keep listening to the podcast, right? You know, keep, let, let, let me still be a part of your life in some form or fashion, but good luck with your other coach. That's cool. That's cool. So, uh, thank you for the question, Nancy. And thank you to everybody. That's it. Hour and a half, hour and 40 minutes, something like that. By the time it's all said and done, we made it through one, one, uh, one take got it done. Great questions this month, y'all. Uh, once again, if you want to get your questions uh, on the on the list for next month or the next month or the next month, anytime down the road, the best way to do it is to head over to the Facebook group, disruns.com slash Facebook. Don't worry, I'm not gonna I'm not I'm not doing that as a as a big front to just get you to know me to get you to hire me. If it works out, great. But if not, I just want to get to know you. I like to have fun in the Facebook group, have some good posts, some good conversations. Uh, we had a great first month of 2020, hopefully helping people stay on track with their goals. I'd love to have you join the join the party, join the crew, and uh, hopefully help you along the way as well. Uh, even if it's nothing more than just you're part of the group, you're lurking in the quarters, watching the, the conversations take place, hopefully being learning a few things, maybe being a little bit inspired along the way. That's awesome. That's awesome. I know we got plenty of folks that, that that's the case. They pop out and ask a question every so often. Love having them. Love having them. Love to have you join us as well. Dizruns.com slash Facebook. And uh, with that, before I completely lose my voice, because I can feel that it's getting close getting close to happening i'm gonna go ahead and sign off of this one but thank you all for listening thanks for making it through all of these these great questions and some of the the shenanigans questions as well uh but thank you for listening hope you enjoyed this one if you did tell a friend spread the word that certainly helps out a lot uh, but uh, until next time please be well take good care thanks again for listening and uh we'll talk soon all right see you guys <laughs>